everybody. I'm Scott. Hello, I'm Julie. And this is a Good Story is Hard to Find podcast. Where two Catholic friends talk about the books and movies they love and the traces of the one reality that lie below the surface. Yes. You do see, don't you, that she's got to be killed? (laughs) Yes. Agatha Christie is our subject today. Uh, Appointment with Death is the name of the book. Uh, And it's a... Um, you know, I can't pronounce things in French very well, but Hercule Poirot, did I do okay? Hercule Poirot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Good. Good, good, good. And that is the first line. You see, don't you, that she's got to be killed is the first line of this book. And, um, yeah, clearly, yeah, Poirot, uh, overhears it. Mm-hmm. He's closing his window. Yeah. And his, uh, his ears perk up and say, that's an interesting interesting thing for someone to say. I wonder if that will lead to anything. Well, he actually doesn't. He actually just says, oh, you might think it would lead to something, but it's somebody practicing a play or That's reading right. it out yeah. loud or, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and he kind of smiles. And we all know because we're reading Agatha Christie, oh, that one's coming back to haunt us. Yeah. Frowning, he shut it, it being the window decisively, thereby excluding any injurious night air. <laughs> Yeah, he'd been brought up to believe that all outside air was best left outside. That's yes, an interesting perspective. His <laughs> old-fashioned um, foreign ways. So, <laughs> especially in the Middle East, and this book, when it was written, there wouldn't have been air conditioning. So, yeah, wow, he's suffering for his health. Yeah, I didn't think of that too. And uh, yeah, it's hot. You want the windows open. <laughs> You'd think. Yeah, it's funny. It's funny how uh, ideas like that come about. Mm-hmm. Whatever, wherever it came from. Right. <laughs> well, I think from things like um, malaria. Mm-hmm. They didn't oh, know what oh, caused okay. it, yeah. but they keep out the night air if they could. I see, you know? I see, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Living near Understood. swamps and things, you know, yeah. Exactly. Right, right. That kind of thing. Yeah, mosquitoes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so forth. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so he's in Jerusalem when he overhears that. Um, yeah, later sentence. Curious words for one Hercule Perot detective to overhear on his first night in Jerusalem. So he's on uh, uh, vacation, I guess. <clears throat> A lengthy vacation because Murder on the Orient Express happened uh, earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, on the same vacation, I take it. Yeah, and you know, the way I read these, these would have all been come out by the time I started reading Agatha Christie, although at the time I started, she was still alive and putting out two books a year. Mm. There was the summer and the Christmas one, and my parents would always eagerly await the publication and pick it up as soon as they could, you know, paperback from the grocery store or whatever, Uh and then it would go through the household. And so these I encountered out of order, just, you know, as I came across them, because you don't, they don't build on each other. Hmm. They're all, even when it's a series like Miss Marple or Hercule Poirot, or she's got a few others, um, they weren't dependent on each other usually. And um, it was later, fairly recently when I went, oh, wait, he was doing a huge trip (laughs) around the (laughs) Mideast. So you've got... Murder in Mesopotamia and um, Death on the Nile, and everywhere he goes, there's somebody killing somebody. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And of course, Agatha Christie, she was married to a famous archaeologist. Oh, really? I didn't husband. know that. Yes, oh, interesting. he was. Uh, oh, crud. Let me look it up really quick. Got so she did some of these travels. Probably. <laughs> well, what she yeah. did, she wrote a book called Come Tell Me How You Live, which is really charming. And it is about spending a year on a dig with him because she would go along and she would clean off the little artifacts and that kind of thing that he would find and help catalog them. And then in the meantime, she would write. Hmm. So they'd always build her a little room in whatever little house they were throwing up at the site they were digging at. And so that book tells about, you know, dealing with the local people, just all the living conditions there. Oh, yeah, Max Mellowin. Hmm. And he was her second husband. I've read her autobiography more than once. It's quite charming. <laughs> it's huge, but charming. 
So is the autobiography that you're talking about, is that Come Tell Me How You Live? Or no, no, there's no. a different one that's also Yeah, hype. she has a, her own autobiography. And since she was born during the Victor- Vic- blah. since she was born during Victorian times, she's giving you this insight into not only her life, but just what life was like like that in Britain. And, you know, this very easy to read way that she writes these mysteries is the same way she's writing her own story. Hmm. It is so readable. I recommend it to people all the time. Although, as I say, the it's daunting. Hmm. Oh, here we go. Um, this the size of it can be daunting, but it is just a wonderful book. Especially kind of, it sounds funny, but like you know, light reading if you want something in between the the stuff you've been assigned for podcasts or things mm. like that. Yeah, yeah. But I was trying to think. Her husband, he was a very important guy, and he helped discover. I thought it was Nimrod. Oh, really? Nice. Nineveh. He worked at Nineveh doing things. But she was talking about going around. And one of the things in Come Tell Me How You Live is she's talking about as they go from mound to mound, there's all these mounds of you know dirt <laughs> underneath our old cities and villages. And they're going around trying to figure out which one would be the best to dig at and all that kind of thing. And um, yeah, so. Nice. Yeah, I'm writing that yeah. down. I think I'd enjoy that. Yeah, and mm-hmm. Come Tell Me How You Live is pretty short, and it's definitely very readable. Nice. Okay. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah, so um, Appointment with Death was written in 1938. Mm-hmm. Um, immediately preceding that was Death on the Nile. Okay. And uh, let's see. Um, looks like Murder on the Orient Express was 1934, and as far as Perot goes... Uh, Murder in Mesopotamia is uh, in between there, 1936. Okay. So she wrote 75 books. Yeah. So that's, that's a lot. Most of them pretty good. <laughs> that's cool. That's cool. Yeah. And what gets me about her is that you can have read a book before and remember a lot of it, and you'll still get fooled by who's done the murder. Hmm. I mean, when I was going through rereading a bunch of them a few years ago, I'd think, oh, yeah, I, I'm going to read this because I like these characters, but I remember the setup. I know who did it. And then you're like, why aren't there all these pages left? Oh, crap. I didn't remember the actual murderer. I remembered just this part. And then she keeps twisting and twisting and twisting. And you look, and she used to be accused of hiding all the clues or not giving you everything. And But what you see, especially when you have a book like this one where Poirot is doing his closed room, well, it could be you. It could mm. be you. <laughs> and he's explaining how that would work and how the timeline goes together. You see all the clues that have been there in plain sight the whole time. Yeah, she was yeah. so good at that. Yeah, it was terrific. And this one especially so. Yeah. It's interesting how this one was set up to, you know, again, that first line. You do see, don't you, that she's got to be killed is mm-hmm. – um, the victim in this in this book is someone who uh, everybody would like to see gone, <laughs> including us. Including us, yes, Horrible. yeah. She's the worst. This is Boynton, right? Yeah. So the setup is that um, you know, yes, there's this little intro with Hercule Poirot, but then it goes to another character, Sarah King, who's um, encountered a young man on the way to this big hotel in Jerusalem. And he's kind of snubbing her now, and she sees him with his family. And then she runs into a famous practitioner in her own field of medicine, who's Dr. Girard. And he's a psychiatrist or psychologist, and so is she. She's just gotten her medical degree. So they do a lot of talking throughout the book of, well, the psychology is this. (laughs) And you're Mm. kind of looking at it sometimes going, well, all right, I guess. But it's fairly sound in terms of what Agatha Christie's trying to point out. And what you realize as they are watching this family is that the they have this odd tension going on. And the mother is terrible. She's just like a spider in the middle of a web doing things that will deliberately upset everybody in the family. And and be kind of a psychological, I don't know, controller of all of them yeah through through um yeah kind of sadistic methods right yep and she's been doing it to them except for the wife of one of them since they were young so they've kind of been conditioned that 
they can't really break away very easily. And, um, of course, Sarah King is interested in, you know, one of the sons of the family. And that's how we first see it, is the old lady deliberately making him walk by her but not pay attention to her. And he's upset. And it's just kind of interesting to see somebody who's so, you, you by the time she's killed, you're just like, oh, thank goodness. Hmm. Even though you shouldn't, you know you shouldn't. Yeah. Yeah. But it's just a story. Yeah, and, and as a reader, you know, you could see that coming. Mm-hmm. Um, well, yeah, you know, I was, I was assuming, <laughs> I was assuming that she was going to be the victim, you know, right. because he was really building a case, uh, you know, uh, yeah. for a lot of other, a lot of people to be accused of this. Yes, yeah. everybody couldn't stand her, and then they go on a trip to oh gosh where is it the place where everything's petra petra that's it Mm -hmm. because i was going oh thank goodness for indiana jones i know (laughs) (laughs) yeah and what an eerie setting to choose you know yeah and so then they go and some other people are uh there at the same time so it's one little group of people who are kind of thrown together because they're kind of in safari conditions with the servants and the tents and the common meals and everything. And of course the old lady is killed and it's at a time when all these people went by and talked to her beforehand or was it beforehand? Was it after? (laughs) And, um, Hercule Poirot is asked to investigate because the person who's in charge of it, the local authority is not satisfied, even though she could very likely have had a heart attack. She was very infirm Mm. And he's just like, oh, there's something I don't like about it. Yeah. So he gets yeah. asked, and he says, oh, I can tell you in 24 hours. <laughs> yep. Because that's how long they can hold everyone there without charges. You bet, you bet. To investigate, yeah. And so then we see him going around and talking to people and their interactions with each other a little bit, and then he solves it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, he's a pretty confident guy. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing to me was when I reread this, so entering major spoiler territory, everybody, um, the thing that first made me perk up my ears when I was rereading this was you've read Murder or No of Murder on the Orient Express, right? Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. If anybody hasn't, go read it. Although in our culture, I don't know how you could not know what's the spoiler for Murder on the Orient Express. Mm-hmm. But somebody in this book brings up that murder mm-hmm. and says, I understand there was a case on the Orient Express where you accepted the group's decision, the group's decision and let the murderers go free. And of course mm-hmm. there, it was the case of this person had been like the Lindbergh kid, baby kidnapper I don't know if you know about that, but anyway, he was horrible and the baby died and um, justice was not served and all the people on the train had been, or in the car, had been associated with it. So they all went through and, you know, stabbed the guy in the middle of the night. So it was kind of like a jury trial. Mm. And he said, well, I don't have proof, but here's what I think happened. But we could look at it as a jury of your peers, which is the only time I know of that he let a murderer go. Yeah. And um, so somebody's kind of obliquely referring to that, and they were nobody was supposed to say anything. And he's like, Well, I wonder who told you that. And then he says, No, there is never an excuse for murder. Yeah. He says, I don't care if they were a saint or a monster. You can't do it. Yeah. And that's a, that's a really nice quote. It's right here, right after that. So just to read this section real quick, you know, mm-hmm. I have heard M- Monsieur Perrault. That once in that affair of the Orient Express, you accepted an official verdict of what had happened. Perot looked at her curiously. I wonder who told you that. Is it true? He said slowly, that case was different. No, no, it was not different. The man who was killed was evil. Her voice dropped, as she was. And Perot said, the moral character of the victim has nothing to do with it. A human being who has exercised the right of private judgment and taken the life of another human being is not safe to exist amongst the community. I tell you that. I, Hercule Poirot. (laughs) It's me. Ultimate authority here. Yeah, yeah. But that line, yeah, the moral character of the victim has nothing to do with it. A human being who has exercised the right of private judgment 
and taking the mm-hmm. life of another human being is not safe to exist amongst a community. Yeah. And there's another book uh, later on that's set in England hmm. where that point gets made even more strongly. Yeah. Because who the person who did the murder says, well, but I'm, but look at the good I'm doing. Hmm. Look at my position. Look at this. This person would have stopped me. And he's like, no, because you have taken the judgment of God into your own hands. Right, right. This, you, you are now a danger to everyone because, look, you didn't do, just do it once, did you? You did it several times to cover your tracks. <laughs> you are not a good person anymore. Yeah, that's and, right. And um, yeah. that strong moral thread going through there. For one thing, I found it really interesting that she was referring back to her own book. So I don't know if it's just, it was like a corrective. Well, I don't know. That, it's like, you know, this this book in, in a lot of ways is sort of a response or a companion to it, right? Because yeah. You, because, yeah, you've got the same kind of a situation. And um, the answer to this one could have been a very similar deal. <laughs> you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Um, but yet it didn't happen that way here. And it right. was it was different. Um yeah, so I'm wondering if, yeah, she was writing a response to her own book or, or yeah, a, a companion. Yeah, that's what I thought yeah. was interesting. She's like, well, you know, that wasn't the whole side of the story. And I don't know if there was anything else that came up in discussion of it or just her thinking it over. Yeah. Because in the case of Murder on the Orient Express, that person was a murderer hmm. who had been allowed to escape unpunished. Yeah. Um, and in this case... <laughs> she was, you might argue, a killer of souls, <laughs> but she was just, you know, you murderer a of love. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Exactly. So, but yeah, 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 and it's interesting too. Uh, you know, everybody was fixated on her, you know, and saying how terrible she was, and we're in, we're in orbit around her, and really the reason that they were all staying is because she had money, right? It was it was sort of greed to stay there in the first place. I mean, why well, why even stay? No, I don't think that was it. I think what it was is she had impressed on them that she held the money bags, yes, the strings to the bags, but I think because they had been conditioned from so young. Mm. to do whatever she said and she had all that power i think it was the idea that they didn't know how to break away yeah and i know that lennox was that way lennox was her son and and there was a line somewhere in here that uh i won't look up but it said something about you know you can open the cage door and he still won't walk out Mm -hmm. Um, and they were kind of all like that hmm. because they said that she had gotten bored they thought or the you know dr gerard said he thinks she'd gotten bored by being at home with all these people, well, they were all in her power. There was no fun. She couldn't torture anybody anymore. So then she comes abroad to see what else she can find to <laughs> bug them with. Oh, look, here's this freedom. I'll let you talk to this person. Nope, you can't do it anymore. And I think they were so psychologically in thrall. They were just used to, hmm. not used to it, but just, you know, if you're conditioned to something, it's hard to turn against the authority you've always known. Hmm. Interesting. Because I don't think it was purely money. Okay. Um, and they kind of make that point throughout the book is, you know, once she's dead, they're kind of like, oh, we've been set free. It's like they're out from under a magic spell <laughs> because she had such a domineering personality and she'd been working on him forever. Yeah. 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 And Nadine's story is interesting from that mm-hmm. respect too. So she's, someone who who uh was hired by the family and then sort of caught in the web and ended up marrying Lennox um but it was sort of orchestrated by right. Mrs. Boynton yeah yeah cuz the one thing that Lennox started defying her defying the mother because he was going out and finding dates in the local village mm. and so she fixed that by having a poor relative come to help take care of the household and she was young and attractive and they fell in love and got married and then so nadine wasn't under her power nadine could see clearly what was going on but she couldn't get her husband to break free and so during the during the story you know she tries that one thing of okay there here's this guy who's devoted to me who's following us around like a lap dog i'm going to run away with him and divorce you 
that's when the husband seems to wake up. And of course, that's the afternoon that the mother is murdered. So that's seen as being a powerful reason for him to have been the murderer. Yeah, yeah. Because he's like, well, that's, this is what I have to do or I'll never get away. I hate you. Yeah, and he was going to tell her something. In fact, he told her that he told her. He told her that he talked to his mom and said, uh, you know, I'm leaving, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. But that never happened, right? I'm trying to remember for sure. I think when yeah, he, I think she was I think already, she was dead, already dead when he, he went to talk yeah. to her, yeah. Well, so that didn't and they kind happen. of also help you understand the mentality of everybody by saying that the mother, before she married, had been a warden in a prison, a women's prison. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they yeah. thought, oh, she was attracted to that and it made her become sadistic. And the Dr. Girard, the psychologist, says, oh, no, I think it was the other way around. I think <laughs> she was already sadistic and this was just a great job for her. And you're just like, Ew. <laughs> So yeah. imagine somebody like that it's like, yeah, that's raising a good small fit. children. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so that's what Agatha Christie's trying to set up to show why they're all in her power. Because the other person from outside is Sarah King, who's interested in Raymond, the younger son. And she's the one who at some point kind of shakes herself free. And um, in the hotel lobby at one point, she says she had felt that Mrs. Boynton was a sinister figure, an incarnation of evil malignancy. Now, suddenly, she saw the old woman as a pathetic, ineffectual figure. To be born with such a lust for power, such a desire for dominion, and to achieve only a petty domestic tyranny. If only her children could see her as Sarah saw her that minute, an object of pity, a stupid, malignant, pathetic, posturing old woman. Hmm. And so then she goes up and talks to her and says, you know, I feel sorry for you. And the thing is, though, is that we've been seeing her power also through the eyes of everybody. And at this moment, we can see Sarah breaking free from that and going, hold on. I now have that perspective. Hmm. She is pathetic. And it kind of makes you stop and think, or at least me, it made me stop and think about, you know, there are some people who are just the worst and you can't understand why you can't help them change their perspective or like Mrs. Boynton. Hmm. It's like, no, they're also in their own patterns. Yeah. You know, and Mm -hmm. it's, you're giving them the power. Like this whole family is giving her the power. They don't mean to, they've been conditioned to be the way they are, Mm -hmm. but I don't know. It was just an interesting look at, you know, there's people out there like that. They're just the worst and they're the worst about stuff. That's so stupid. (laughs) You know, in offices and mm-hmm. things oh, like yeah. that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And it's it's interesting to look at the uh look at this, you know, as um it's almost, you know, they're they're feeding off each other and they can't quite see until someone <laughs> someone outside sees, right? Mm-hmm. Breaks the pattern. Breaks the pattern, right. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting, and that's kind of a larger community thing, you know. The mm-hmm. yeah, once they once they join a larger community, then they get to grow, <laughs> I guess. But you know, right. I guess it was her death that's finally released them. But uh, right. still, um, there was a lot of talk going on, like you know, between Lennox and Nadine, for example. You know, she was telling them all the time, you know, this is not good. Yeah. Yeah. She's like, well, mother wants you to have a child. And she's like, I am not doing that. I'm not bringing a kid into this household. <laughs> mm. yeah. You know? Yeah. And you could just see, because that's one more way the mother would have control of them. Mm. Yeah. And then uh, yeah. Sarah as well, like you said. And Dr. Gerard, mm-hmm. who is a psychologist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> and the other thing that... <laughs> it was just so interesting to me. They're out there and they're standing up and looking over from a promontory, all this landscape around them. And the doctor, I believe, starts quoting the Bible. We're talking about, you know, when Jesus is taken up onto the mountain and tempted by the devil. So at one point, Sarah's up there looking at everything. And Dr. Gerard says, you appreciate the appositeness of the devil's temptation in the New Testament. Satan took our Lord up to the summit of a mountain and showed him the world. 
all these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. How much greater the temptation up on high to be a god of material power. Hmm. And, you know, the god of material power. And that's what Mrs. Boynton is doing. It gets brought up that she had the great desire to be appreciated. And so this is how she got her appreciation. Wow. Yeah. You know, and um, at, then earlier he has said, are you a Christian, mademoiselle? Talking to Sarah still. Sarah said slowly, I don't know. I used to think that I wasn't anything, but now I'm not sure. I feel, oh, I feel that if I could sweep all this away. She made a violent gesture. All the buildings and the sects and the fierce squabbling churches that, that I might see Christ's quiet figure riding into Jerusalem on a donkey and believe in him. Dr. Gerard said gravely, I believe at least in one of the chief tenets of the Christian faith, contentment with a lowly place. I'm a doctor, and I know that ambition, the desire to succeed, to have power, leads to most ills of the human soul. If the desire is realized, it leads to arrogance, violence, and final satiety. And if it is denied, ah, if it is denied, let all the asylums for the insane rise up and give their testimony. They are filled with human beings who were unable to face being mediocre, insignificant, ineffective, and who therefore created for themselves ways of escape from reality, so to be shut off from life itself forever. Hmm. And she says, it's too bad the Boynton woman isn't in an asylum. And he goes, oh, no, her place isn't among the failures. She succeeded. She's accomplished her dream. <laughs> and you just go, oh, holy crap, what kind of a dream is this? <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah. I marked that same spot. That was good stuff. Yeah, and wow. it's the you don't expect all that stuff to be brought out in a mystery, but it, that uh, that obvious desire to be lowly mm-hmm. is so. Well, I say obvious; it's not obvious, but the Christian desire to be lowly, it is so hard to maintain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't want to be like Mrs. Boynton, but I do like to be appreciated. <laughs> For sure, and yeah. to to be humble. Yeah, some of it means just not putting yourself forward as much as you'd like, which, you know, we can kind of hang on to. But sometimes you realize, oh, my gosh, I'm being so prideful right now. I want to dictate these terms. I don't want people to tell me what to do. (laughs) And it's not unreasonable for those people to dictate to you. Yeah, correct. Yeah, putting other people, you know, ahead. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, allowing yourself to be in that lowly spot. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I guess that's what humility is. Acceptance of that. Yeah. I don't have to be the boss of you. Right, right. Or even of myself. Right. Your life is not about you, says Bishop <laughs> Barron. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. That's hard to remember. Oh, for sure. Because I'm the one looking yeah. at everything. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's my eyes that are seeing all this stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and, and this is somehow connected. You know, she talks about young people sometimes. Um, and she talked about Americans, you know, a mm-hmm. little bit. But um, she says, young people have the courage of their ideals and convictions, and their values are more theoretical than practical. They have not experienced as yet that fact contradicts theory. If mm-hmm. you have a belief in yourself and in the rightness of what you're doing, you can accomplish things that are well worthwhile. You know, which is very true. You know, mm-hmm. it's very true. But still, it's kind of connected to what we're saying about you know, humility and things like that. I think it's when you believe more in your own belief of rightness. <laughs> right. You know what I, I mean? And that takes precedence over the other people. Um, I think that's maybe where it goes awry. And that's sort of what the, the doctor said earlier, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's, the, it's this power. You know, you believe that you have the power to uh, make this determination better than anybody else. Yeah, and so what you see in her is um, what happens when it goes long unfettered. Hmm. And is she happy? She's not happy. No, not at all. She's she's miserable. Mm-hmm. And you know that's when Sarah goes up to her and says, "You know, I you're you're pathetic. <laughs> I feel sorry for you. Yeah, you know, you could be happy. 
And of course, that's the moment when she says the thing about I never forget a face and she's looking over Sarah's shoulder. And that's when I was like, this is the moment. I don't know who she's talking to, but whoever she's talking to is who's going to murder her. Because I, I've read enough Agatha Christie. And she's like, she wasn't even looking at me. I'm like, no, <laughs> she wasn't. <laughs> wow. Yeah. But um, mm. like I say, but the way it's written, it just seems as if she's being rude and ignoring her while she's making this pronouncement. Yeah. But at the same time, she is trying to make herself feel better because as the doctor, Hercule Poirot, I think, says, she's just been told how it works. She has been cut down to size by this girl. No, I still have power over this person. Hmm. Well, guess what? That person is not one of the people that you have been keeping under your thumb for all this time. And so they're cowed. That person will take their own action Hmm. to protect themselves. Yeah, yeah. And they do. Mm Mm-hmm. Terrific. So she says yeah. her own fate or, you know. Yeah, yeah I love that, that misdirection stuff, you know. So I guess the key to that is that she provided another uh, motive for mm-hmm. her looking away, <clears throat> you know. Because I didn't right. catch that on the when I was reading it. You know, I thought, you know, it didn't even occur to me that it was something else. But I haven't read a ton of Agatha Christie. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I know I didn't know it the first time. And the second time, you know, like I say, recently, within a few years ago, mm. I just I remember reading that going, oh, yeah, this is that moment. This is a clue. That's cool. But you have to know her books enough. And even then, I didn't get it right. Because mm. enough extra people are provided that if you don't think it's one of the family, it could be one of these other people mm. yep. who are along for the ride. Right, right. So, mm. Yeah. Yep. Even yep. then, I got it wrong, like I say. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, she's mm-hmm. fantastic. Um, I, an interesting aspect of this book, you know, uh, we had Hercule Perot at the very beginning, you know, overhearing that mm-hmm. um, at the window. And then he's pretty much gone. <clears throat> you know, he's he like walks through the scene every now and then. He's, he's like, uh, uh, the book is definitely not about him or from his perspective at all. Yeah. And then um, suddenly he becomes the main character again in part two. Right. Um, so now all this stuff has happened. And um, I thought that was really interesting how she did that. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of times until the actual investigation begins, you don't um, see that much of him. Mm-hmm. Some of so them this is pretty typical him. of her then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I'm thinking of Murder on the Orient Express. You have more of it because he's questioning all these people. Yeah. And we're seeing him talk it over with whoever the official from the train is who brought him in. So the murder happens, you know, immediately or something. Yeah. Well, well, most of the mysteries that I've read, the, the sleuth or whoever's, whoever's doing the detecting is the main character throughout, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. So to me, this was different. Yeah. But if it's it could be typical Agatha Christie, and if it is, I, it's interesting. It's pretty cool. I enjoyed it quite a bit. Yeah, I think it's more typical because she puts you in the scene usually. So mm-hmm. like Murder on the Orient Express, we're just seeing everybody get on the train and kind of vaguely interact with each other. And Hercule Poirot is shown there, but he's just like having his lunch or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so he's just a bystander at that point. And when he gets brought into things, for instance... Um, one of my favorite of her occasionally recurring characters from her later books is Mrs. Oliver, who is an author. And really, they say it's Agatha Christie put herself into the books. Oh. You know, her hair's always coming undone. She gets out of a car and apple cores go everywhere because she's been eating apples while she was driving. And she's, But she's well-meaning, but she knows she can't solve the mystery even though she writes mysteries herself. Mm. And so at some point... She always winds up having Hercule Poirot come in or she intersects with him and he gets called in to handle whatever murder that she saw. Mm-hmm. So she then becomes the focal point for telling us the story, but it's still not, as you say, the main detective. And a lot of times the action will be taken away from her too. And you see other people interacting. Hmm. So you get a fuller view. Yeah. But I think it's kind of necessary in order for her to be able to do all her misdirection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it works really well. Mm-hmm. But the Tommy and Tuppence mysteries, which are um, a young couple, well, she follows them as they age through the books. She lets them age. Mm-hmm. So the last one, they're quite old. 
but they are always the center of focus. It's always told from their point of view. Mm-hmm. So, except yeah. maybe an opening scene or something to set the context. Yeah, for sure. A picture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I, and I like, you know, uh, Perot's little statements, you know, like this one. He says, on the whole, you know, people tell you the truth <clears throat> because it is easier, because it is less strain on the inventive faculties. You can tell one lie or two lies or three lies or even four lies, but you cannot lie all the time. And so the truth becomes plain. Mm-hmm. He's talking to this Colonel, Colonel Carberry. Colonel He's <laughs> another occasionally occurring character. Oh, gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. But, nice. um, mm-hmm. well, that's the thing, you know. It's hard to remember lies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Kind of embedded with truth, I guess, that way. Right, right. And eventually it'll fall down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the other themes I liked was expressed in a couple different places in the book, especially at the end. But the idea that there there's a the daughter of the family who's actually Mrs. Boynton's own daughter with the father of the family, right? She's mm-hmm. the second wife. And Jen. Ginevra, Ginevra. Yeah. I don't know how you say her name. Yeah. I kept thinking Ginevra, but that's the wrong. It's Ginevra. Anyway, she she is going crazy. You know, she's got delusions of grandeur. She's, you know, tearing up little pieces of paper beneath <laughs> the table while her face is very calm because she's grown up under this sadistic person's um motherhood i guess you call it although yeah. it's just horrible to think of somebody doing that to their own kid yeah and she's compared to ophelia from hamlet mm-hmm. if you remember yeah and she plays her at the end when she's successful and set free mm-hmm. but they talk about how uh, dr gerard talks about how mrs boynton and jenny are basically the same personality and someone says that's awful and he goes well no it's not awful it doesn't mean it has to be bad. It's just this kind of personality. They, they're bigger than life. They like attention. They, you know, and, and by the end, Jenny has become an actress. And you're like, oh, okay. I could see that. Mm-hmm. And so you have the themes of what happens if you're twisted? What happens to that kind of personality versus what happens if you're allowed to be good? Mm-hmm. You know, and be yourself and just express yourself in a normal way. And it is put in terms of light versus darkness, which going along with the Christian things that we were talking about, light and dark are obviously huge themes in, say, the Gospel of John, mm-hmm. but throughout the Bible also, because a lot of that comes from Isaiah and other places in the Old Testament. And... Um, they're all celebrating at the end of the book, and Jenny's had a wonderful, marvelous triumph on stage as Ophelia, and Hercule Poirot, as you say, he happens to be nearby, and he stops by to congratulate them. Mm-hmm. And so they have a drink together, toasting to Jenny, and they're talking about what everybody's done. You know, Raymond and Sarah got married, and all these things. Everybody's happy now. And... Sarah was going to drink a toast to Ginny, and she gave a tiny start. For a moment, her face was grave. She raised her glass slowly to her lips. You drink a toast, madame? asked Poirot. Sarah said slowly, I thought suddenly of her, and she capitalizes the H. <laughs> Looking at Ginny, I saw, for the first time, the likeness. The same thing, only Ginny is in light, where she, capital S, was in darkness. And from opposite, Ginevra said unexpectedly, Poor mother. She was queer. Now that we're all so happy, I feel kind of sorry for her. She didn't get what she wanted out of life. It must have been tough for her. (laughs) And I love that for a couple reasons, like I say, the light and darkness motifs, but also the mercy that Mm. Ginny was able to extend to her mother. Yeah. Boeing, she didn't get what she wanted out of life. That must have been tough. That is the most charitable interpretation of that whole thing. You know? Because yeah. mm-hmm. it is the thing if you have and it's the bookend to where we see them at the beginning. They're gathered in that hotel lobby and they're being observed by Sarah and Dr. Gerard, and it's like a malevolent old spider in the middle of a web and everybody's miserable. 
Yeah. And then you mm-hmm. see this at the end where they're all happy and laughing and still together as a family and able to be themselves, fully themselves. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's really well done. Very yeah. well done. Yep. And with all those with all the comments that are made earlier about being lowly, about not putting yourself forward, about, you know, being offered the temptation of if I give you this, says Satan, you could be the master of the world, but what would that have meant? Really? Mm-hmm. It would have meant misery because it wasn't the right way to do anything. Mm-hmm. And so that's the final commentary on the whole book is you know, the rightness is in the being ourselves, but coming into the light, mm. letting go of the stuff that's just about us. And, you know, of course, this podcast, what can you say? That's only Christ can do that for you. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. We need help. Mm-hmm. We can't do it on our own. That we do. Yeah. <laughs> Wish <laughs> I didn't need that help so often. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, bring forth the holy two by four. <laughs> oh, dang it. Time again. <laughs> <laughs> I often need a wallop. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Me too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then it also kind of shows that idea of, you know, when people are just terrible, it's really hard to be able to look at them and have that kind of uh, charity. Mm-hmm. And, and not meaning charity like going, oh, it's okay, because they had a horrible childhood. So, it's all right that they do this, because it's never all right. <laughs> but to be able to try to see a little deeper into the fact that somewhere in there is an anguished person. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. You know, and then, you know, don't forget the reaction of, you know, your own reaction to that stuff, too. You know, everybody here was wishing she was dead, you know, and everything. But I know what you're saying, you know, about them being kind of under a spell and mm-hmm. not able to let go, you know, but we're going to, we're going to have things like that. We're going to have people like that. And, oh, yeah. and wishing they were dead is probably not the best solution. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you really shouldn't go there with it. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And your reaction, you know, you're giving that person the power is the wrong thing to do. Mm-hmm. Right. That's true. Yeah. Well, and even in the book, when Poirot is pulled in, he knows by then who has said it because he's met everybody. He knows the voices of the people. And he goes to, you know, Raymond and his sister, Carol, and says, look, I know this was you. Did one of you do this? Mm -hmm. And they're like, no, that was the madness of the evening. (laughs) Because by morning we woke up and we're just ashamed or, you know, we knew that couldn't happen or. Mm -hmm. uh, But you're right. It's. It's dangerous to flirt with those thoughts and especially to have more than one person flirting with those thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's when you might do it. Right. Although I guess the murderer didn't. She did it on her own. <laughs> yeah, and the murderer came out of nowhere, didn't she? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, when I was poking around, I was curious if this was a movie. And it was, oh. and it looks oh. like uh, Laura, Lauren Bacall played oh. Mrs. Westholm. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Who was Mrs. Boynton? I can't, I can't remember, but um, it was, yeah. it was a. Uh, let's see. Famous actress, I guess. Yeah, it was. It was pretty okay. So, 1988 film. Yeah, if it, I was going to say if it was Miss, if Lauren Bacall was playing. Mrs. Westholm, then yeah. that means it was an older or a more recent movie. So, so. yeah. So, uh, Lauren Bacall, Carrie Fisher, Sir John Gilgood, oh. Piper Laurie, Haley Mills, Jenny Seagrove, and David Soule. <laughs> 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 Might be one to look up. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> Peter Ustinov played Hercule. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No one can do him right, really. <laughs> but certainly not Peter Ustinov. Not Ustinov and... How about, did you see the the uh, Murder on the Orient Express with Brana? No. No? no? Okay. No, one look at that mustache and I went, nope, you're not doing this right. Uh, shoot. Yeah, I remember reading uh, a lot of complaints, you know, saying, what, why would you do it that way? I mean, it, it's not even, it's, right. yeah, the description, the famous description. But Ustinov wasn't either, right? Mm-mm. Yeah, so... But he was brought on after, who was it in the 
like 1970s version of Murder on the Orient Express, who Albert Finney, maybe, mm-hmm. who played Poirot evidently really well. And oh, I never I saw that, see one, that either. one I need to see that original one. But he, yeah, he, I don't know why he didn't do it, or maybe he died or whatever. And so they brought in Ustinov, who said, I knew I couldn't be Finney. And I knew that I had to play him like this because I wound up seeing, um, oh gosh, what was it? Murder on the Nile, where he also played Poirot. So this must have been the beginning of a short string of movies Mm. that he did that for. Because for a while, those were really popular movies. Because they were, you know, a big ensemble cast, Very a lot of people being allowed to chew the furniture. Mm. No, chew the scenery. (laughs) Whatever they're (laughs) chewing. They were allowed to act wildly. And... um, you know, I, I don't really, it's the problem of I don't care to see movies made out of books that I already like or characters yeah. that I already yeah. like. Because it's so hard to get it the same as in my head. Right. And uh, one of the kids recently brought up, yes, that's why you should always see the movie before you read the book. And I went, oh, that never occurred to me. <laughs> in a lot of cases, I can't help it. There's not a version of Jane Eyre I'm ever going to like. Mm. Done. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, so I'm looking at this Murder on the Orient Express from 1974. Wow, it's got quite a cast. Mm-hmm. You know, Albert Finney, Lauren Bacall again, um, Ingrid Bergman, mm-hmm. Jacqueline Bissett, Sean Connery, John Gilgood, Anthony Perkins, Vanessa Redgrave, Michael York, <laughs> Richard Widmark. Everyone. Yeah, I'm definitely going to watch that one. But definitely, I would say anybody who wants to try just a regular Agatha Christie mystery, this is good. There's, Of course, if you've listened this far, you already have read it probably. But, you know, she wrote so many books and all of them can just be picked up and they're light entertainment. But as I say, I was surprised when I was rereading a bunch of them to find there was always something that she was commenting on, usually not as obviously as in this book. Hmm. But there was always something. Yeah. You know, Poirot or Miss Marple or whoever would say something or a theme would continually be brought up by other people, you know. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's that's cool. You know, the, in the best books that I've read that are mysteries or thrillers or something like that, um, often it is the, you know, the setting and... Um, you know, like, for example, I just watched some, I, I'm really into these British TV shows that are mysteries, mm-hmm. British and Swedish, but the last one I watched was called Shetland. Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, the setting of the, the show is fascinating as the mysteries, you know? Um, yeah. And when we read, uh, I remember a long time ago, we read um, James Lee Burke. We read the first right. one of that, Neon Rain, right. but... But where he is and the people he's interacting with are as interesting as as um, what's happening there. So. Oh, yeah, definitely. And mm-hmm. if you're reading a mystery series where it's a recurring character and it is being used to forward the character's life, which often happens, especially these days, that also can become as good as the mystery. Yeah. Um, for very light entertainment, very light I've been reading some <clears throat> M.C. Beaton mysteries. M.C. Beaton. She has a series mm-hmm. about Agatha Raisin, who is a very unlikable woman. Huh. But she's a former PR person who gives it all up. She gets bought out, and she gives it up and moves from London to this tiny village. And there's not as much continuity as I would like for the village and everything. But what happens is you see her growing and changing and developing some and that's the mysteries aren't often very interesting to me, mm-hmm. but you know that's fine. It's the vehicle, and sh- there's another series that's about Hamish Macbeth, and he's a small town, village uh, Scottish um, policeman, hmm. and he's <laughs> the person who wrote these used to be a mystery or a romance writer, so you can tell there's always these kind of romance tropes in both of these. So he's interested in the Lord of the village's daughter. But the thing is, is that what makes him different is he's very happy where he is. He's super good at solving murders, which happen with surprising regularity in this tiny village, of course, 
but he also just doesn't want to be promoted. So he'll get given chances and he'll find ways to sabotage it. He hmm. likes his life the way it is. He's lazy and not very ambitious, but there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but like I say, they're very light. There's not a lot of deeper content. You just kind of read them like popcorn. You oh, know? cool. Mm-hmm. Nice. And the setting is always kind of good, reading about the village and Scotland and whatever. Yeah, fun. Yeah. Cool. Looks like that's a TV series as well. Oh, yeah, I Because I knew so. I had heard, heard of that. Yeah. <clears throat> and it's got a fairly high rating, so. Yeah, and those actually I listen to as audiobooks. Oh, cool. I don't read them, I listen to them. And the audiobooks are well done. Okay. So. Nice. Yeah. Wonderful. Mm-hmm. Noted. Wrote, written down. <laughs> Yeah. Well, so not cool. before you read Agatha Christie. That's I'm right. just going to say. More. Yeah. So what what would you recommend there? Do you have any other titles that you, because we've done, and then there were none. And mm-hmm. uh, this one. I really like, although this is different, I like Death Comes as the End, which she set in ancient Egypt. Death Comes as the End. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. And she had a friend who was an Egyptologist who she drove crazy with questions like, what would they eat for dinner? What would they? But it's a classic, you know, family in distress and everything. And But the father of the family is a priest, you know, which means he takes care of the dead. Because mm-hmm. that was so important in Egypt. So that's a really good one. Um, and then, I don't know, there's just, I'll have to... I'll have to think about it. But, okay. I mean, a whole bunch of them are really good, you yeah, know. Yeah, nice. Yeah, yeah, I know she was good. She's a writer to watch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I would say before you read any of those other ones, if you haven't read much Agatha Christie, she's the one I would say to dive into because she's kind of got the light touch, but a bit more, you know, depth, as we were saying. And she's so good. I've read some of her books three or four times, and then if it's been long enough in between, I'm like, oh, I forgot that's who did it. Dang it, she did it to me again. (laughs) Nice. That's cool. That's great. Well, wonderful. Well, thanks for this book. No, you're welcome. I'm glad you liked it. Really, really liked it. Good, I'm glad. Yeah. Very much so. Yeah. See, next, yeah, the next thing that we have is Chef. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah, that's a good movie. I have seen that. <laughs> I'm I'm looking forward to seeing it again. I, I was just thinking of summer, mm-hmm. less serious yeah. between the Agatha Christie and this. You know, that's mm-hmm. kind of a beach read sort mm-hmm. of thing. Summer reading. Yeah, it's yeah. kind of a summer movie. Yep, agreed. It was fun. It's going to be yeah. great. Okay, <laughs> looking forward to it. So, yep. all right. Well, have a good one. Thanks again for the book. Yeah. And thanks, thanks. for listening, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> they talk to you in a couple weeks. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.